I'll invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We began uh, some weeks ago, a few weeks ago, a series that um, on the subject of faith. We're entitling the series, The ABCs of Faith. And in case you're wondering, I stole that title from Brother Hagen. Make no apologies for it whatsoever. I'm pretty much stealing his messages anyway, so I might as well steal his titles. We've, uh, we've been looking at a number of things. Uh, we talked a little bit about what faith is. We certainly haven't exhausted the subject. Uh, I don't think you could. But we talked a little bit about what faith is, and, uh, um, and now we're talking about uh, how faith comes. The ABCs of faith are very simply what faith is, how faith comes, or how to get faith. And then the third thing is how to use your faith. That's why we call them the, the ABCs of faith, because they're, they're foundational principles concerning the subject of faith. Now, the reason that faith is so important Actually, there are a number of reasons why faith is very important. But one that uh, that stands out to me more than anything else, and we used it for a text scripture, it was in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 and 17. Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, verse 17, for therein is the righteousness in the word of God through the word of God. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. In other words, righteousness is revealed as you grow in faith. Well, is there anything more important than the revelation of righteousness in the Christian life? I mean, really, when you think about it, when you get right down to it, everything Jesus provided for us is called the gift of righteousness in a general sense. So is there anything more important than the revelation of righteousness? Righteousness doesn't grow, although we can grow in our knowledge of it. Righteousness is given once and for all when you make Jesus the Lord of your life. You don't grow in righteousness, but you do grow in the knowledge of what you have. And so therein, in the Word of God, through the Word of God, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as you grow in faith, in other words. As it is written, the just, those that are made righteous, the just shall live by faith. One of the most outstanding things about the subject of faith to me is that it's the lifestyle that God demands. Well, if the lifestyle that God demands is a lifestyle of faith, is there anything more important for the Christian to know than faith? I don't think so. Well, we saw some other things about the subject of faith. We found out faith is a spiritual force. Faith is of the heart. With the heart, man believes. Faith is a spiritual force. It's not a mental force. It's not a natural force. It's a spiritual force. It's one of the three things that are eternal. Paul said in writing to the Corinthian church, he said, there are three things that abide. In other words, three things that will last forever, faith, hope, and love. Now, in the context he's talking about spiritual gifts, he said the greatest of these is love. So when it comes to the operation of spiritual gifts or the manifestation of the spirit, the greatest thing, the greatest principle is love. Love should be the foundation for everything that we do in operating by the spirit of God. But that doesn't mean love is the most important thing of everything that exists. It means love is the most important thing in that context. We also see here in in, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 that faith deals with the unseen. Notice verse 1. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. So faith has to have substance. In other words, faith is a real thing. Faith is a real thing. Notice it says faith is the substance of things hoped for. There's a reality of faith that there's not to hope. Let me say that again. There's a reality to, of, to faith that hope doesn't have. Hope is like a dream. But faith is the plan to get from where you are to the fulfillment of that dream. There's substance to faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Notice the next thing it says is the evidence of things not seen. Now, how can you have evidence of something that's not seen? 
If we think about it on one hand, from one point of view, that seems like a, a, a conundrum. How can you have evidence of things that you don't see? But if you think about it from another perspective, there's a lot of things that we have evidence of that we don't see. A lot of things that we believe in that we don't see. One fellow said, well, I'm never going to believe in anything that I can't see. And the, and the minister he was talking to said, well, do you believe you have any brains? He said, well, certainly. He said, have you ever seen them? Well, there's a lot of things we take for granted because of information provided to us. We take for granted that there's this thing called law, the law of gravity that holds us to the earth. Have any of you ever seen it? We see the results of it. But have any of you ever seen the law of gravity? No. And Jesus used this as, uh, as an example of spiritual things, as an example of the Holy Ghost when he was talking to uh, Nicodemus talking about being born again, he said, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he, uh, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, teacher of the Jews, didn't understand that. He said, how can a man be born again after he's old? And Jesus talked about the wind. He said, you see the wind moving in the trees, but you don't know where it came from. We see the same thing. We see the wind blowing in the trees, but we don't see the wind. There's a lot of things that we take for granted that we don't see because of information provided to us. Well, in the same way, it says faith is the evidence of things not seen. In other words, faith is the thing that we believe in, the unseen things that we believe in because of information or knowledge that we've gained. Faith is that knowledge. Now, notice also in verse 6, it says, but without faith, it's impossible to please God. We see that faith deals with the unseen. Notice that faith is the prerequisite, is the criteria, is the critical element for pleasing God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. It didn't say without faith, it's hard to please God. It says it's impossible to please God without faith. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Notice it says that faith is the prerequisite. It's the requirement to please God. Now, folks, let me tell you something. If God requires you to have faith in order to please him, but he doesn't tell you how to get faith, then we could challenge his justice. He would be unjust and unfair. But if the Bible tells us how to get faith, then whether or not we have faith is our responsibility. In other words, our measure of faith is up to us and not to God if God tells us how to get faith. The Bible tells us the importance of faith. We've talked about just a couple of those points here just in the first few minutes of the message this morning. Because it's the lifestyle God demands, because it's impossible to please God without it. We saw in James chapter 1, without faith, it's impossible to receive anything from God. So if faith is necessary to please God, to live the lifestyle that God demands, and to receive from God, if God doesn't tell you how to get faith, then he's unjust. He's holding judgment over our head without any means for us to come into a place where we're pleasing unto him. But if the Bible tells us how to get faith, then faith becomes our responsibility and not God's. Romans ten seventeen says, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So therefore, since God tells us how to get faith, let's walk this through. That means whether or not we're pleasing unto God is up to us, not up to him. That means whether or not we receive God is up to us, not to him. That means whether or not we live the lifestyle that God demands is up to us and not up to God. Now think about how contrary that is to most of the modern church teaching. 
Most of the church world thinks that whatever God's will is will happen, whether man does anything about it or not. There's nothing that can stop it. If it's the will of God, that's the way that it is. But, folks, I would submit something to you. The Bible says it's the will of God for every person to be saved. Is every person going to be saved? Certainly not. Why? Well, some people come up with this doctrine of God's election. They say, well, God picks certain ones. If that's true, then we've got some pages to tear out of the Bible. Because the Bible says God is no respecter of persons. In other words, he doesn't want one thing for one person that he doesn't want for every person. If God wants salvation for some and not salvation for others, then we've got to tear that page out of the Bible. And once we start tearing pages out of the Bible, which ones do we know to keep? That's the problem I have with people saying that certain verses of Scripture don't belong to us nowadays. On face value, the Scripture they say doesn't belong to us might not mean anything on its own. But if they start taking that one away from me, what other ones are they going to take away? I don't want to get doctrine from anybody that's taking Scriptures away from me. Do you? Well, that's what denominations have done. Denominations have said, well, this Scripture doesn't belong to us today. They've said this, this part of the Bible has passed away. Really? Well, then what other parts of the Bible have passed away? What other promises of God have passed away? Seems to me they always take out the ones that are a blessing and a benefit to us and say that doesn't belong to us nowadays. Well, good. Just leave us the tough ones. Just leave us the ones about judgment. And then we'll say to the world, come get saved and be happy like us. No, bless God, the whole Bible belongs to us. Amen. So if God tells you how to get faith and whether or not you are pleasing to God is your responsibility and not God's. In other words, if the word of God is the source of faith, and it is, then that means your measure of faith is dependent on what you do with the word of God and not what God does. Now, how many people do you know that are praying for faith? I see this a lot. I see a lot of people there. A lot of times people come up and say, Pastor Mike, usually it's people that, that uh, uh, have just attended a service. Many times it's healing school because people are desperate to receive their healing. And I understand that. I have compassion for them. But I'll have people that will come up and say, Pastor Mike, I need you to pray that I'll have faith. Well, if faith came by praying, I would do that. But faith doesn't come by praying. Faith comes by hearing the word. And see, so many times people are trying to put it off over on somebody else. Well, if so-and-so prays for me, then that'll work. Well, if the Bible says that faith is the only way to receive from God, then whether so-and-so prays for you or not, if you don't have faith, you're not going to receive. That's why faith is so important. That's why faith is so important. Now, as we said in Romans chapter 10, as a matter of fact, turn with me over to Romans chapter 10. Let's talk about this for a minute. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, So then faith cometh by hearing. Let's talk about your measure of faith a little bit this morning. Let's start reading in verse 6 of Romans chapter 10. Paul, writing by the Holy Ghost, said, But the righteousness which is of faith speaks like this, speaketh on this wise. That means here's what the righteousness of faith sounds like. Here's what the righteousness which is of faith sounds like. Now, how many of you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Okay, then this is talking about you. That's the righteousness which you received by faith, not by your own works. You received righteousness based on what Jesus did and not based on what you did other than receiving him as your Lord and Savior. That's the only thing you really did in this. You believed what you heard and then you accepted. 
So it wasn't your works, it was Jesus' work on the cross that provided you this righteousness, and it came by faith. And notice that Paul is saying about this most important subject, the subject that God, the, the, uh, the lifestyle that God demands of his people, the means whereby you please God and the means whereby you receive from God. Notice what he said about this lifestyle. He said this righteousness which is of faith or which is by faith, which is through the operation of faith, which is revealed as you grow in faith, as we've seen from other scriptures. This righteousness which is of faith sounds like this. Here's what it says. First of all, he says, it doesn't say who shall ascend to heaven to bring him back down. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. The righteousness which is of faith doesn't say if only Jesus was here on the earth. If only Jesus could come back. If only I could minister, be ministered to like Jesus ministered to the people when he was here on the earth. That's not the righteousness which is of faith. Well, then what does it sound like? Well, here's something else it doesn't sound like. It doesn't say who shall descend into the deep. That is to bring up Christ again from the dead. It doesn't say if only Jesus could come back and do one more work on the cross, if he could only do something else for me specifically so that it would be a part of his resurrection or redemptive work. In other words, the righteousness which is of faith is not looking for God to do something he hasn't already done. He's not looking for Jesus to do anything else. Now, how many people do you know of that are believing for healing is a good example, believing for their healing, saying, well, I believe God's going to heal me. How's he going to do that? Sometimes I try to shock people when I have to. Sometimes I shock people and say, well, he's not. God's done all he's ever going to do about your healing. And usually they misinterpret what I'm saying and they'll get upset and they'll say, you mean God's not going to heal me? I didn't say that. What I said is God's done everything he's ever going to do about your healing. In other words, Jesus isn't going to come back to the cross and hang on it for another few minutes for you. He's not going to come back and let Pilate hit him one more time with that that whip or whatever it was that the Roman soldiers beat him with. He's not taking one more stripe on his back. Well, why wouldn't he do that? Because it's not necessary. He's done everything that's ever needs to be done so that you have the healing that you desire. So righteousness, the righteousness which is a faith, doesn't look for God to do something else. Well, then what does it do? What does faith sound like? What does the righteousness which your faith sound like? Verse 8, but what saith it? What does it say? We know what it doesn't say. It doesn't say if only Jesus could come back to the earth some way. What does it say? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. In other words, he's saying the righteousness which is of faith is that which speaks the word you already have. The righteousness which is of faith, in other words, the faith that receives from God, the faith that's required to please God, the faith that is the lifestyle that God demands, speaks the word that you already have. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, that doesn't seem like that will be enough. Well, that's your problem. You're going by what it seems like. You know, it's an interesting thing. God could have made the world any way he wanted to. He could have made a seems-like world. He could have made a world where everything spiritually was just the way it seemed. But he didn't. He made a world where you had to go by things that didn't seem like based on things that were not seen. 
And so this is what it's talking about. It's talking about faith is part of the unseen. Faith deals with that which is not seen. Therefore, faith, the righteousness which is of faith, says the word that you already have. Well, where do we have this word? Notice it says it's in your heart and it's in your mouth. In other words, faith, in order for it to be effective in your life, in order for it to please God, in order for it to receive from God, has to be in your heart and in your mouth. Now he's going to explain how that works in salvation. Verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's how every one of us got saved. In some form or another, you may have said something different than what the prayer that they led me in when I got saved. There may have been variations, but it came down to the same thing. In essence, we believed in the work of Jesus on the, on the cross, and in some way we prayed and confessed Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And that's what brought us into salvation. Why? Because the word that we heard was in our heart, and it came out of our mouth. And that caused us to be saved. That caused a change of spiritual nature. The most supernatural, the most spectacular, the most miraculous event that could ever happen, happened because you believed something and said it. And it changed your eternity. Well, if believing in your heart and saying with your mouth can change your eternity, why can't it change your here and now? The Bible says it can. Verse 10 explains a little bit further. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness... And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Now, you could substitute anything for the word righteousness and the word salvation that is a part of what Jesus did. For example, the Bible says in Galatians 3.13 that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Part of the curse of the law is being made free, being set free, being redeemed from every sickness, known or unknown to mankind. So that's part of the righteousness, that's part of the gift of righteousness that Jesus accomplished on the cross. So we could say, for with the heart, man believeth unto healing, and with the mouth, confession is made unto that healing, that physical health. Deuteronomy 28 tells us another part of the curse of law. It says we're redeemed from the curse of poverty. There were all these curses. Curses shall you be when you go in and come out, cursed in the field and cursed in the city and all this other kind of stuff. But the blessing of Abraham that you, it was that you'll be blessed in everything you do and everywhere you go. That's part of the gift of righteousness, therefore. So we could substitute that. We could say, for with the heart man believeth unto prosperity, and with mouth the mouth confession is made unto physical provision, material provision. Same principle. Faith works the same in every area. Same principle. Believe in the heart and say with the mouth. Can you see that? Now, Paul is going to describe this a little further, so let's keep reading. For there is no, uh, uh, verse 11, for the scripture says, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. You know what the word ashamed means? The word ashamed literally means to flee from fear. He that believeth in him shall never flee from fear. He that believeth shall never flee, shall never run away from something because they're afraid. He that believes in, in God, he that operates according to this principle of faith, will always be able to stand in the face of whatever the devil does and never have to turn his back because he's afraid of it. Nothing shall overtake him. Nothing shall overcome him because he can stand his ground. He can be established and hold steady and never have to turn around and run because of fear. I like that. I like that a lot. Whosoever believeth in him shall never be ashamed. In other words, it will never fail to come to pass. Your faith will never fail to come to pass if you hold steady. 
You don't ever have to be afraid that a promise of God will never come to pass. Yet that's the very thing that the devil will try to work against you with. He'll try to tell you, well, healing's not working for you. Must be some sin in your life. Must not be treating your, your wife or your kids right. Because faith works by love and you know that's, that's the number one hindrance. Must be something wrong with you. You may even have your wife tell you, yeah, that's why it's not working for you. But that's where the devil tries to beat you up. The devil tries to tell you it's not working. It may have worked for somebody else. It may have worked in that story that the pastor told, but it's not going to work for you. Whoso believeth in him shall never be ashamed. I love that. Verse 12, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. Greek means Gentile. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. The same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. In other words, he answers, he hears, and he responds in rich manner. Now, what does rich mean? Does rich mean barely get by? Can you think of any application where rich means nose to the grindstone, barely get by in any area of life? Rich means more than you need. I don't care how you apply that. I'm not just talking about money, but rich means more than you need in any area that you've got. You might be rich in tools for your garage. It means you got more than you need. Doesn't have to be money. Don't let rich just, just apply to finance, financial things. Rich could mean, could be used in any area. You could be rich in health. For the Lord overall is rich unto all, 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 all that call upon Him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now notice the description that Paul gives here. How then shall they call in Him on whom, on whom they've not believed? In other words, believing is necessary to call. Who's going to call on the Lord if they don't believe in him? And how shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. We know he's going to tell us that in verse 17. So how can you believe in something you haven't heard? And if you haven't heard, you can't believe. And if you can't believe or don't believe, then you won't call on the Lord. And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful is it? are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? In other words, it's not just a matter of somebody preaching. The responsibility is still on the part of the individual to believe. Verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, if you follow the progression in verse 14, you'll see very clearly that faith comes by hearing, meaning this. Faith comes by the knowledge of God's will. That's what hearing is about. Hearing is coming to the knowledge of the will of God. They can't believe unless they've heard. In other words, if they don't hear the will of God, they can't believe for the will of God to be accomplished in their life. But if they believe in the will of God to be accomplished in their life, let's say for salvation, if they believe that Jesus died on the cross so that we could avoid hell... And go to heaven, spend eternity in heaven with God. If we believe that, then that gives us a basis to call on the name of the Lord. Why? Because we've heard that it's the will of God for us to be saved. Now turn with me over to, uh, to Acts chapter 8. Let me show you something. Let me show you how this works. Acts chapter 8 tells us about Philip going down to Samaria and preaching Christ. One of the first times the, the gospel left Jerusalem. 
Notice in verse 5, it says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. Now, he did it with power. Verse 6, And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed, and there there was great joy in the city. What has he informed them of? He's informed them that Jesus died on the cross, and that death on the cross included their eternal salvation, and healing and deliverance for the body. Notice verse 12. Here's where they act on what they what they heard. But when they believed, Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. In other words, they heard Philip tell them what the will of God was for them. They believed it and they received it. Let me make a statement to you that I don't ever want you to let get away from you. I first heard it from Brother Hagin. I don't know who he heard it from or who he got it from or who originally said it. I don't know who coined it. But, folks, this is something that is an eternal truth, and that is this. Faith begins where the will of God is known. And anytime there's a problem with faith, anytime somebody has a problem with their faith, it always comes down to one basic thing, and that is they're not convinced of God's will. When you know what the will of God is, faith is automatic. That's up to you to act on it. We're talking about how faith comes. We're not talking about how to act on your faith yet. But when you know what the will of God is in any area, faith is automatic. It takes no effort on the part of the will of man. It takes no effort on the part of the intellect of man to get faith. Faith comes by the knowledge of God's will. We see it right here in Acts chapter 8. They heard Philip preaching Jesus. What does that mean? Jesus came to the earth, went to the cross, died for your well-being, and that resurrection included deliverance and healing for the physical body. They believed it, and they saw the evidence. They believed him, and they gave their hearts and their lives to Jesus. Notice in chapter 9, look at the story of Paul. Paul's on the road to Damascus. Light shines round about him and his company. They're all fallen to the ground. Well, let's just start reading in verse 3. As he journeyed, this is Saul, who later becomes Paul. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? I don't know who you are, but it's obvious you're above me. Who art thou, Lord? He is confessing that whoever this is, is Lord. He recognizes his God. He just doesn't know how how or why God would be talking to him in this way. Who art thou, Lord? And the voice answers back. The Lord says, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now, we know that the reason Paul is going to Damascus is because he's given letters by the chief priests uh, and the council in Jerusalem to put in jail, to put to imprison every Christian he can find in Damascus. He's there to persecute the church. He's there to imprison them. He was standing by when, when Stephen was stoned just a few chapters earlier. He's been involved in the imprisoning and the death of other Christians up to that point. 
And he's continuing his work. He knows what they're preaching. He knows what Christians are preaching. Christians are preaching that Jesus died on the cross, that he was raised from the dead. Therefore, you don't have to keep the law of Moses anymore. And that's what Paul's fighting against. So as soon as Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you persecute, Paul knows everything they preached was true. Everything I've been fighting against is true. Jesus did come to the earth. Jesus did die on the cross. Jesus is obviously alive. He's talking to me. He's obviously got power because he knocked me off my animal. He's blinded me with this light. I cannot see. I am helpless. Obviously, he has power, just like they said. He's alive, just like they said. He's resurrected from the dead, just like they said. He has all power on heaven and earth, just like they said. He knows exactly what God's will is at this point in time because he knows the doctrine of the Christian church. It's that doctrine he's fighting against. So as soon as Jesus said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest, Paul knows the will of God. There had to be an oh snap moment for him. There had to be a moment where he said, "Uh oh, this is not good. Because he instantly knows the will of God and he knows he's been fighting against it. Instantly. Folks, the revelation of God's will comes through his word. In this case, it was the spoken word where Jesus is speaking directly to him. Paul then says, verse 6, he said, And he trembling, there's this old snap, and he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? Notice after he knows he's Jesus, he calls him Lord. Paul got saved just like that. Paul did not answer, I don't believe in you. Paul did not answer, I don't care what light I see. I don't care what voice I hear. I'm never going to release my hold and my actions, my lifestyle concerning the law of Moses. Moses is my guy. I don't care who you are, Jesus. He could have. He could have said, well, I don't know. It's going to take a sign for me. Now, you laugh, but that's what Moses did. Moses is talking to a burning bush and says, Lord, give me a sign. (laughs) Now, I would have considered the bush to be the sign, but, you know. I take comfort in that. God doesn't always pick the sharpest people in town to use. (laughs) Paul could have said any number of things, but he said, Lord, what would you have me to do? In other words, Paul makes an instant transformation of his life, instant transformation of his life from persecuting the church to now, Lord, I'll do whatever you say. My life is now yours. I'm not a persecutor of you anymore. Don't tell me it takes a long time to change your life. Paul turned his around instantly. Lord, what would you have me to do? And then the Lord told him what to do. He said, arise and go into the city and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And then it talks about how that he was in Damascus for three days and that Paul, that God sent a certain disciple named Ananias to him. Verse 10, he saw the Lord in a vision and the Lord tells him to go to Saul and lay hands on him because, um, uh, well, let's just start reading in verse 11. It says, then the Lord said unto him, this is unto Ananias, arise and go into the street, which is called straight and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus for behold, he prayeth. It's got to be revelation. How would Ananias know that Saul is praying? At this point in time, only thing that Ananias knows is Saul's a persecutor. 
He's a destroyer of Christians. But he says he's praying. Really? Okay. And the Lord says, Saul has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered and said, Lord, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he has done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that's King James English for saying, look, if he's blind, if he's incapacitated in any way, isn't that good? That would have been my way of interpreting Ananias to say, hallelujah, God, you just saved us. I would have thought you would have struck him down and killed him, but hey, this is pretty good. At least he can't see us anymore. But the Lord said unto him, verse 15, go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much great, how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Ananias didn't argue anymore. That's it. Okay. That's what you want me to do. That's what I'll do. And Ananias went in his way and entered into his house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul. Now, he wouldn't call him brother unless he's saved. The information he got from the Lord indicated to him that Saul had already given his life to Jesus. Otherwise, he would have said, Saul, you hater of God. You persecutor of the church. God has given you mercy, but you better turn your life around right now. But he didn't. He said, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. The Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, has sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. Paul had seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him to receive his sight. He knew the will of God concerning receiving his sight. Faith comes by the knowledge of God's will. Ananias, we don't know the rest of this. We don't know if Paul first heard about the Holy Ghost being filled with the Holy Ghost from the saints in Jerusalem or from Ananias when he came. But either way, he reveals to Paul, it's God's will for you to be filled with the Holy Ghost. And he was. Faith comes by the knowledge of God's will. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. It tells about Paul and his missionary journeys, Paul and Barnabas. It says they had to leave certain towns because they were threatened uh, with stoning. And so they went to uh, the city of Lystra, verse 7, and there they preached the gospel. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. The same heard Paul speak, who, steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand upright on thy feet, and he leaped and walked. How did he get faith to be healed? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. They preached the gospel. So the gospel Paul preached had to include information about his physical healing. Otherwise, he wouldn't have had faith to be healed. What does that mean? That means the man gained knowledge of the will of God concerning his physical condition. And it produced faith in his heart. He acted on it when he stood up in obedience to Paul. Stand upright on your feet. He leaped and walked. Faith begins where the will of God is known. Always. And without the knowledge of God's will, there is no such thing as faith. Therefore, your measure of faith depends on your attention to the word of God to determine God's will for your life. It can't work any other way. Now, turn back with me to Joshua chapter 1. Let me tell you a story. In, um, I went to Bible school in the fall of 1980. 
And um, through a series of circumstances that I had nothing to do with, I wound up working for Brother Hagen in the summer of 1981 on his crusade team. I worked for him on his crusades from uh, June of 1981. I guess uh, June was our first uh, crusade. From June of 1981 all the way through the next year of where I finished, uh, went to continued school, the second year of school, Bible school, and uh, for several years after that. But when 1982 came around, I'd been working for Brother Hagen for a year. I loved my job. Man, I, this was the best job it was a job you couldn't get. And it's not like something that you could go apply for. It was something they picked people for, and it's just something God worked out. It was, I had a lot of people that were upset with me because I had that job, because they wanted that job. But it was wonderful, because I got it to be around Brother Hagen, got to hear the word preached every day, got to travel with him on the road, got to spend time with him personally, that kind of stuff. It, it was a dream job. And, uh, and, and I, I just love my job. But the reality was, and I don't mean any disrespect in any way, but Brother Hagen came up through the Depression. Brother Hagen used to believe God on the road for $150 a week when he was traveling. And he would say he had it pared down to the very, very nubs. I mean, he, he, there was nothing extra in there. He said he spent years of his life, decades of his life. He wouldn't buy a soft drink. He wouldn't buy a stick of gum. He had everything pared down just, just to the bare minimum. And as a result, and, and he said this himself, I'm not uh, speaking disparagingly of him, but he said himself, he lived so many years that way that it was hard for him to change. Well, Brother Hagen, because of that experience that he had growing up in the Depression, in some ways he still thought we were in Depression days in the 80s, at least judging by my salary. There was something that was very unique about this ministry that I was working for that loved, wouldn't it? I mean, I would have paid them if I had to, but I'd had to believe God to do it. But they expected you to believe God was your source, and they wanted to prove it to you every two weeks. <laughs> People that work there know what I'm talking about. And so I was working for just hardly, just barely anything, loving it, didn't care, having the time of my life. But in, in the... Um, um, well, in the late spring, I guess it was, early summer of 1982, the Lord spoke something to me. The Lord said, seek my face. Now, I'm amazed to hear some people talk about how God speaks to them and he tells them these big, long things and, and stuff like that. God speaks to me in words, short sentences, that type of stuff. He says certain things like, seek my face. Well, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know anything. And so I did the only thing that I knew to do, and that was I got out of concordance. I didn't have laptops and stuff like that back in the 80s. And so I got out of concordance, and I made a photocopy of every scripture that the Bible had the word seek, S-E-E-K. And there's a lot of them. And so every day I would go through my Bible looking up every one of those scriptures, and I would write them down. I would uh, I had a list of them where I wrote them out so that if I didn't have a Bible handy with me, I could just pull out a sheet of paper. I spent a lot of time going through the Bible, looking at the verses of Scripture that had the word seek as a part of that verse. Well, some of them, you know, were were special. Some of them meant something. But but the word seek is so common that, you know, there's like 150 verses. And not everything really meant anything to me. But there were a few that did. And so I'm going through every day. I'm saying, Lord, it doesn't seem like this this is what you want me to do. But I don't know what else to do. Now, if I had to do it again, I'd do it a lot differently. I wouldn't study the word seek. 
I would recognize that he's telling me to look for his character and learn more about his attributes and, and his nature and stuff like that. So I'd do it a whole lot differently now than I did then. But I'm just one year into Bible school. I don't know anything. I'm not sure anybody knows anything one year into Bible school. But I certainly didn't. So I'm going through this concordance. I'm going through this list of scriptures day after day after day. And every day I'm going through there and I'm looking at these things and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking on these scriptures and I'm meditating on them and I'm thinking, well, what do I do? I had learned Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. Did you find Joshua 1 yet? Notice verse 8. Here's what God gives Joshua as the principle for success in the call of God upon his life. He says, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us that God's definition of meditating has something to do with what you say. It has to do with the words of your mouth. It doesn't have to do with emptying your mind. A lot of people freak out on the word meditate because they think of Eastern meditation, Eastern religion meditation practices and stuff like that, sitting in a lotus position and humming or whatever. I don't know how it works. But anyway, they think of these weird things, and that's not what the Bible means when it uses the word meditate. The Bible does not mean to empty your mind when it uses the word meditate. It means to fill your mouth. Now, the purpose of filling your mouth is so that it can have an effect on your mind and an effect on your spirit. Your spirit is affected by words. Your spirit is affected by your words more than anybody else's words. That's why the Bible speaks over and over and over again of so many principles that are affected and, and, and dependent on, revolve around the words that you speak. So he says, this book of the law, that's the word of God, that's all they had, the laws of the five books of Moses. This book of the law, all of the word, the entirety of their word, the information transmitted by God through Moses. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. That means you have to keep saying it. But thou shalt meditate therein. Continually saying the word is what the Bible defines as meditating. Thou shalt meditate therein day and night for this purpose that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous and then thou shalt have good success. Now the Bible says that we're supposed to be doers of the word. James chapter 1 Verse 21, I think it is, it says, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Be ye doers of the word. Doing the word had a lot different application for them than it does for us. Because they had 630 laws that were given to them by Moses at the direction of God. So their whole thing was, I've got to learn these 630 laws so that I don't break these 630 laws. For us, it's learning the character and the nature of God and what he's accomplished through the work of Jesus so that we can act accordingly. But I'm glad we don't have 630 rules to keep. There's one law of the new covenant, and that's the law of love. That's hard enough to keep. But notice what he says. He says that the purpose of meditating, speaking the word of God, is that we may observe to do according to all that's written therein. And notice what the result of doing the word is. For then thou shalt have good success. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. I skip that. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. How many people do you know that are praying that God will prosper them? That's not what it says. It says you make your way prosperous. So many people are saying, I don't know why God's letting these financial things happen to me. And they're not doing what the Bible says is the key to making their way prosperous. 
want to let that sink in a little bit. If you're praying for finances, if you're praying about money, you're praying the wrong thing. Because faith for finances comes from knowing the will of God about finances. It doesn't come from begging God to do something about your money. It comes from being a doer of the word, which is the revelation of God's will, so that you can make your way prosperous. Your prosperity depends on your doing the word. It doesn't depend on God and what he wants for your life. So many people take the circumstances of their life and accept, well, I don't know why, but I guess this is the way God wants it to be for me. No, God wants it to be the way that the word says it is for everybody. But whether it is the way the word says it is for you depends on whether or not you find out what God's word is or what his will is for you and then act according to that will. Now, folks, I got to tell you, it would do every one of us a bunch of good if I just keep saying that over and over and over again for the rest of the day. I mean, to move forward from that and act like, well, okay, we've covered that. Now let's move on. Is just foolish because that's everything. Because faith begins where the will of God is known. There's only one way you can ever know the will of God, and that is through God's word. So what does God say? Speak the word. For what purpose? So that you can know what he wants. You can know what his will is. You can know what Jesus has accomplished for you. Jesus accomplished everything that is the will of God for you. So it's important for you to speak the word of God concerning what God has already done, not what he's going to do or what you hope he wants, what you want him to do, but what God has already done so that you can know, not just here, but inside, in your spirit, man, because faith is of the heart. Know in your spirit what God's will is for your life. Now, folks, I got to tell you something. I never really ran from God or rebelled against God, but I did rebel against the, the, the religious denomination that I was a part of. I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, and I knew God before I knew the Baptists. I got saved with my mom in my bedroom. Didn't have any church doctrine, didn't know anything about church doctrine. I was just a few days before my seventh birthday. You know, what does six-year-olds know about church doctrine? So I didn't know anything about church doctrine. But as I grew up in the church, I grew up to find that what they did, what their doctrine was, what their plan was, was for you and me, or I'll say me, was for me to live a godly life. But they didn't give me any power to live it. As a result, they lived miserable lives. They were constantly under condemnation. Now, please don't misunderstand me. They were good people. They loved God with all their hearts. They were sincere. They were operating on everything that they knew. I'm not throwing off on them or anybody else. But I didn't want to live their lives. I saw that they didn't have any power in their lives They weren't telling me about any power to live my life, a right kind of life, because they didn't have any power to tell me about. And so consequently, every week, every service was a rededicate your life service because nobody had been able to keep up with the life that they said we're supposed to live. It was just like Judaism. People are breaking the law without any power to keep it. We were doing the same thing, or they were doing the same thing in the Baptist church and expected me to live up to what they were doing. And they were miserable. Now, let me tell you something about this. I rebelled against the condemnation lifestyle that they lived. Now, let me tell you something about condemnation. 
The only time and the only place in life that condemnation can exist is in the absence of strength. Let me say that again. The only place that condemnation can exist in your life, in anybody's life, is in the absence of strength. You look at Romans 7, and Paul talks about the condemnation that he was experiencing. He said, I want to do right from the inside, me, the real me, the spirit of man. My spirit wants to do right, but I can't control my body. My body does things I don't want it to do, and it won't do the things that I, the man on the inside, wants it to do. And he ends the chapter with saying, woe is me. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? That was the lifestyle that I was seeing in the church that I grew up in. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? The only thing they had to look forward to was Jesus coming back and going to heaven. And folks, it's a miserable life to live defeated here on the earth, waiting for Jesus to come as an escape route. That's not what Jesus left you here on the earth to live. But Paul turns the corner in Romans chapter 8. His question is, who's going to deliver me from this life of condemnation? Chapter 8 turns the corner completely. It's a change of lifestyle. Now, this is the same Paul that got saved on the road to Damascus. This is the same Paul that got filled with the Holy Ghost when Ananias laid hands on him. But now his righteousness has been revealed in his life. The righteousness of God is now revealed in his life when he's writing to the Romans because he has grown or developed in his faith. So in Romans chapter 8, he starts off and says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. He answers the question in chapter 7. He said, Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The last verse of the chapter, I think, says something like, I thank my God through Jesus Christ my Lord. But he didn't tell you how until chapter 8. Chapter 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Why? What happened, Paul? What made the difference? You were in condemnation two verses before. You were complaining about being delivered, not being delivered from the body of this death and no means of deliverance. What happened? He says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. In other words, he's saying there's a power that I have that I didn't know I had when I was living under condemnation. Now I've realized, I've come to realize through growing and developing in faith, in other words, the revelation of God's will for me and in my life, that revelation of God's will is for me to be free from condemnation, therefore I am. Condemnation can't exist when you know you have strength or power. It just can't. Now that doesn't mean you'll never miss it. But then missing it, Or living up to the standard of righteousness becomes a choice. And if you choose, because you're pulled away by your flesh, if you choose to disobey God, it's not something that you spend the rest of your life wallowing around in. It's a matter of, Lord, forgive me, I made that mistake. But I have the power to correct it, and so I do so now. So even forgiveness, even repentance and forgiveness is from a position of strength, not a position of weakness. Can you see that? Well, see, that's what I rebelled against. I never really rebelled against God. I just rebelled against the religious lifestyle that I saw people living. But, oh, listen. When I found out, when I started hearing some tapes, and I got a hold of some tapes by Brother Hagin, when I started hearing what the Word said about the kind of life you could live, the first time I heard it is, you've got to be kidding me. But something on the inside of me is saying all the time, yeah, this is right. So I got out my Bible. Never done that before. I had to dust one off. 
I got out my Bible and started following on, along with the verses that I heard Brother Hagin speaking about on those tapes. And every one of those things that he quoted was in my Bible. Who knew? Certainly not me. Now, folks, we say that kind of as a joke, but literally, think about that. Who knew? The people that know are the ones that are going to live up to it. Because faith begins where the will of God is known. I didn't know, so I couldn't live up to the strength that the Bible gives us. The people that were teaching me didn't know, maybe still don't know, about the power that we have in the name of Jesus. They know there's power in the name of Jesus because there's a verse of Scripture that talks about that. But they didn't know how to apply that power to their lives. But when I found out the teaching of Brother Hagin, what Brother Hagin was teaching from the Word, I say it's his teaching, it really isn't, it's just the Word. He's just telling what the Word says. When I heard him start talking about that, I thought, man, this is it for me. And I jumped whole hog into this thing. You know what that means? I'm sorry, I sometimes just revert to Alabama. I I can't help it. I went all in. (laughs) That doesn't help much either. I'm either using a poker term or a redneck term. Uh, (laughs) Now, there was a couple of months where I was in a transition period where I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what God's plan for my life was. But man, listen, once I saw, once we took a trip to Tulsa, for my dad's sake, trying to get him healed. We took a trip to Tulsa and I saw what people were living like that were in Bible school, just Bible school students. But these Bible school students who did, looking back at it, knew nothing, looked to me to be spiritual giants. I'm thinking, man, look at the light that's on their face. Look at the joy that's in their life. I've been lived in the Baptist church all my life and never seen anybody like this. I want that. Don't ever discount your life. As seen by people that are not saved or not walking with God. You may not see a light on you, but they do. I saw that and I wanted it. I turned everything about my life upside down to get a part of that. I determined I'm going to have that. And so I started finding out. I started growing. I went. I started learning about God. It changed my life. It changed everything about my life. Well, move forward a couple of years back to 1982. You remember me telling you about working with Brother Hagen? Well, they just weren't paying us anything. For whatever reason, we were just scraping by, barely getting along. I spent all summer on the road with Brother Hagen that year. Three, three and a half months maybe. Every day studying, seek, the word seek, the word seek, the word seek. I ended that three and a half months and I didn't know any more than I did when I started. And I'm thinking, man, I'm wasting all this time. I'm trying. I'm doing the best that I know to do. But, Lord, every day I'm praying, Lord, show me what to do. I don't understand. How do I seek your face? This has got to be the wrong way to go because it's not. I don't see that it's producing any results in me. I'm not aware of any change that it's making in me. And and I would assume that's why God would tell me that. Wouldn't you think so? But what am I supposed to do? I don't know what else to do. So I just kept on with those verses of Scripture. If I didn't know something else, I stuck with what I was doing. I kept on with those verses of Scriptures. At the end of the summer, we're back at uh, at, the, at Tulsa. The crusade time is over until, well, I guess we had another one scheduled in a month or so at uh, Fred Price's church. But, um, but I'm back in Tulsa, and I'm walking up the back stairs. From the first floor to the second floor back to where my office is. And I'm in mid-step. 
And I'm thinking on, I've been thinking on, I've been meditating, I've been speaking different scriptures, Lord, seek your face. And I just said to myself, or said, you know, kind of under my breath, if you're standing right next to me, you might have heard it, but I didn't speak it out loud where anybody else would hear. But I said, Lord, I've spent all summer long seeking your face. I said, I have no idea if I've been doing right or not, but I've been doing all I know to do. So, Lord, I hope you don't hold it against me. When I said that, all of a sudden, I saw something. Now, back to Joshua chapter 1, 8. Let me, let me refer you back to this. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. That means you keep saying something. But thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then, after you're a doer of the word, putting the word in you and then doing it from your heart, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous and thou shalt have good success. The Amplified says, thou shalt be able to deal wisely in the affairs of life. Well, I want that, don't you? I'm in mid-step, and the Lord quickens to me a verse of Scripture. Now, this is a verse of Scripture I've seen every day. I've been writing out. I've been speaking. I've been reading every day for months and months and months and months. But it was Hebrews 11.6. You remember Hebrews 11.6 where we started? But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. Two things. Number one, that he is. In other words, that God is who he says he is in his word. Number two, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, folks, I want to tell you something about how the word of God becomes real to you. This was a lesson I learned early on. And I've, I've never, I never will lose it, never have let it go. And it's something that I hold fast to consistently. And that is this. Hearing the word is not just a matter of your natural ears listening to what's being said. Hearing has to do with your heart accepting what the Bible says is true. If you had asked me to quote Hebrews eleven six, I could have done it backwards and forwards. But I never saw it until that day. You can't say I didn't hear it before then because I had committed it to memory. I had read it hundreds of times. But that day I saw it. And I'd never seen it before. I'm here to tell you, you can read scriptures thousands of times and not see them. If you had asked me, is there anything in that verse of scripture you're not seeing? I'd have said, well, of course not. How is that possible? I can tell you what it says. I can tell you where to find it. I can quote it. I don't need to look it up. Here's what it says. I had it committed to memory. But that doesn't mean you see it in your heart. It does not mean you've seen it yet. That day, in mid-step, going up the stairs from the first floor to the second floor of the administration building of Kenneth Hagin Ministries, I saw that scripture. The Lord didn't say a word to me. I just saw it. Can I show you something? Turn with the old to Ephesians chapter 1. I was talking about uh, a little bit about my experience. Like I said, and I don't know any other way to say this, I never really have rebelled or run to, uh, rebelled against or run from God, but I sure have run from the lifestyle that I saw other people telling me I had to live. I didn't want to live their life. I, I didn't. I didn't see the benefit of living their life. I didn't want the results that I saw in them, and so I was running away. And here's what I was running away from: I was running away from their telling me that God wanted me to do something in life, because if they're the 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 end result of what somebody looks like when God wants you to do it. I didn't want any part of that. Now, I, I, I got to tell you the truth. I got to be honest. 
I don't want to be guilty of any man's blood, as Paul talked about here to the Ephesians. So I've got to be honest about this, but I don't know how to say it in a, in a kind or respectful way. I don't mean any disrespect, and I don't mean to be unkind. I just didn't want to live their lives. And I saw that their lives were lives of serving God, and they were. They were serving God in everything that they knew how to do and sincerely and, and so forth. They just didn't know. I don't hold it against them. I don't hold it against them for not telling me because they didn't know themselves. I just didn't want their life. And so I was doing everything I could to walk with one foot in the world, never would turn loose of my salvation. I knew, I knew God was on the inside of me, but I was trying to, to live cool. I didn't want to be known as a, as a goody goody Christian and all this kind of stuff. And, and it was too late. By the time I did that, everybody thought that anyway. I was a terrible sinner. By that, I don't mean committed great sins. I mean, I was terrible at sinning. Most Christians are, and they just try to kid themselves. But I just didn't want their kind of life. And the reason I didn't want their life is because I was afraid that God didn't want for me what I wanted for myself. But let me show you something. Notice what Paul prayed for the Ephesians. Paul prayed in chapter 1. I cease not, verse 16, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. In other words, verse verse 18, that the eyes of your understanding, the eyes of your spirit being enlightened are opened. Now go back to, to Hebrews eleven six. The day that I was walking up those steps, my eyes, my spiritual eyes were opened. My natural eyes had seen the verses of Scripture thousands of times. My natural ears had heard those Scriptures quoted by me hundreds of times but that day the eyes of my spirit were opened that's what that word understanding means it means your spirit man your spiritual eyes can be opened even after your natural eyes thinks it's seen everything there is to see because faith deals with the unseen the unseen becomes real when your spirit man's eyes are open to see the truth that's what it really means Sometimes it can happen instantly. Sometimes it happens progressively. We saw that the people in Samaria in Acts chapter 8, their eyes were open instantly to Philip preaching Jesus, and they accepted. Acts chapter 14, the man, at, the crippled man at Lystra, his eyes were opened instantly to the knowledge of God's will for him to be healed, and he received. But sometimes it happens over a progression of time or over, over a period of time. For me, it happened over a period of time where Hebrews eleven six is concerned. But I want you to see this. Verse 18, the eyes of your understanding or your spirit man being enlightened or opened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. That's what I was resistant to. I didn't want to know what God wanted me to do because I didn't think it was going to be as fun as what I wanted for my own life. Now, young people, let me talk to you for a minute. The One of the hardest things, one of the hardest lessons I had to learn was that God wants better for me than I wanted for me. Now, when you say that, people will blow you off and say, how's that possible? I don't know how to explain it to you, but it is. It's real. God wants better for your life than you want for your life. Whatever you've got planned, whatever you've got thought out, here's the way I'd want my life to be. God's got better than that plan for you. And the only way that you won't realize that is if you run from his plan. So you can run from his plan thinking you're running to whatever you want and wind up with exactly the thing you don't want. That's what I was doing. I hadn't gone very far down that road, but that was the road that I was on. But notice what Paul prayed for the church. That the eyes of our spirits would be open, that we would know what is the hope of his calling. That's got to be the plan of God for your life. The second thing he wants your eyes open to is that we would know what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. In other words, 
When you find out God's plan for your life, you'll find out that there is a great inheritance associated with and connected with that. Now, if you learn that as kids, you got it made because most adults hadn't figured that out. Notice the third thing he says is associated with the hope of his calling, and that is what is the exceeding greatness of his power. Now, that's why I was running away from Baptist lifestyle because there was no power to it. That's why I went all in when Brother Hagin started talking about the power of God and being filled with the Holy Ghost and the power of the Word. That's what caused me to go all in because I was looking for the power of God to live the life that I knew I wanted to live from the inside. But that's what I want you to see. When God shows you the hope of His calling, He shows you that there's an inheritance attached to it and that there's power associated with it. That's why you never have to run from what God wants you to do. Whether it's big things, big life career or something like that, or small things like should I tithe or not. Because when your eyes are open to the reality that God wants you to tithe, He'll show you there's an inheritance attached to it and that there's power associated with it. When you realize that God wants you to live according to the law of love, He'll show you there's an inheritance attached to it and power associated with it. He's not trying to take anything from you. He's not trying to keep you from having one moment of fun. He wants to show you what real fun is. So I'm in mid-step, going up the stairs, from the first floor to the second floor. And Hebrews 11:6 became alive to me. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. Up to this point, I'm not seeing anything new. Doesn't make any difference. I already know this. He that cometh to God must, number one, believe that he is. But the second part, and that he is a rewarder, Of them that diligently seek him. I saw in an instant that God had a reward for me because I'd been diligently seeking him. Folks, within a week, they had taken me from being one of the, well, at that point in time, from being the lowest paid employee at Kenneth Hagin Ministries. That's quite a distinction. I used to be part of the group that was the lowest paid employees at Kenneth Hagin Ministries, but they gave them a raise. So I am now the single lowest paid employee at Kenneth Hagin Ministries. And within a week, I got a raise to put me in the top 10%. It more than doubled my salary. Now, wait a minute. Don't get me wrong. I've been working like a dog for them and loving every moment of it. Don't think that I was believing for a raise. I really wasn't. I wasn't, didn't have my face specifically out on a raise. You know, I was willing to do this job. This is what it pays. Fine. I love the job. Love being in the the position that I'm in and so forth. I wasn't actively seeking anything, but I was working hard. I earned my money. I earned the raise. So don't, don't come to me and say, well, Pastor Mike, I want to start believing for the raise. Here's the best way to get a raise. Be worth it. I'm so tired of Christians just wanting bosses to give them money instead of earning their earning their keep. Be too valuable for the boss not to give you a raise. Show your boss that you could work anywhere else and that he's lucky to have you. I didn't say tell him that. I said show that by your work. In other words, make your way prosperous to the word. In one week's time, From seeing that. In one week's time, I saw the reward of God. Now, you could, you could attach that to anything you want to. You could say, I've been doing a great job for a year and you'd, you'd be right. You'd say, I'd worked longer and harder than anybody else there. You'd be right. 
You should have seen the singing groups that they used to give up to help. Dear Lord. These guys thought they were celebrities. So I'm doing my work and their work too for most of the time. Beth was one of that group, by the way. (laughs) You know what she started to do? About Thursday of every crusade week, she'd say, Honey, can I just sleep in today? Listen to her making excuses. <laughs> so you could attach the, 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 the reason for that any way you wanted to. I know what the reason was for me. The reason was it was God rewarding me for diligently seeking him. It's not apart from the other things that was just already in, in place. But it's because my eyes were opened. I learned a great, great lesson that day. And that is this. The scriptures you think you see, the scriptures you think you know, those are the ones you need to meditate on. Because there is truth, there is an inheritance, and there is power behind those things that, that, that you can't find any other way than meditating. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, where it was the story of the man who brought his son to be delivered of the devil. Jesus said this to the disciples. The disciples came and said, why couldn't we do this? Why couldn't we cast the devil out of him? Jesus said, let these sayings sink down into your ears. In other words, he's saying, you've got some work to do where the word of God is concerned. Because it's meditating in the Word of God that makes it real, that opens our spiritual eyes. There's nothing that will open your spiritual eyes like putting yourself in the presence of God's Word. That's why meditating is so important. And meditation in the Word will bring you faith that you thought you already had. Faith begins where the will of God is known. You want your eyes open to the reality of God's Word? You start meditating on Scriptures. You want your eyes open to the reality of healing? Start meditating on the fact that Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses. You want your eyes open to God's plan for your life? Start meditating on the on scriptures concerning prosperity and God's will for you to prosper. You start meditating on those things so that it goes from mental knowledge to spiritual enlightenment. Spiritual enlightenment. I had time. Uh, well, I don't have time. Paul said this right into the church. Right into the Corinthians. He said, I has not seen nor has ear heard the things that God has prepared for man. Well, how are we going to find those things out? He said, but those things are revealed to us by the Spirit. Those things are revealed to us by the Spirit. Those things are revealed to us by the Spirit. Folks, that doesn't just mean that we have scriptures that tell us about it. It means that as we meditate on those scriptures, those scriptures enlighten us. The entrance of God's word gives light. And when that light of God's word comes in and what that really means is the knowledge of his will becomes real to us, then faith is automatic. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the privilege to walk by faith. I feel so sorry for people that have had it easy in life, Father, and never had to learn to to trust you. Because there's no greater privilege than to believe your word and to see it work in our lives. It brings us a stability and a comfort, a knowledge that you were with us like nothing else can do. So, Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. We commit ourselves to meditate in your word and to be doers thereof. Because as we are doers of your word, then we shall make our way prosperous. And then we shall deal wisely in the affairs of life. Thank you, Father for opening our spiritual eyes. Even as Paul prayed for the church, I pray for this church. That you would give unto us the spirit of wisdom and revelation 
in the knowledge of you. The eyes of our understanding or our spirit being opened that we would know what is the hope of your calling and what are the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us as a believer. Thank you, Father, for making your word real to us that we might trust you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. Why don't you make a confession with me? Say this after me. I'm a believer. I'm not a doubter. I believe God's word is true. I believe that God has blessed me with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And as I extend my faith in God's word toward him, those spiritual blessings become a reality in my life. All things are possible to him that believes. I'm a believer. Therefore, all things are possible with me. Do you believe that? I didn't ask if you agree to that mentally. I said, do you believe that? You start meditating on that and come to the place where your eyes are open to that. Watch the devil run and flee from you. Amen. God bless you. Don't forget, Tony's going to be here tonight ministering in healing school. Uh, prayer school's at 5 o'clock. Come on back and be with us this evening. Have a great day, and you're dismissed.